Cybersecurity. Here are your co-hosts and cybersecurity experts, Brian Horning, Reginald Andre, and Randy Bryan. We love you. <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Security Squawk Podcast. I have wrangled Andre and Randy back to their boxes. Yes. After their nice event in Chicago. And we're actually going to get to the long-awaited review of the cyber insurance applications. Today, we are demystifying cyber insurance, and we're going to take a deep dive into some cyber insurance applications that your business has probably filled out if you purchase this product in some way, shape, or form. So in today's episode, we're going to go through these applications from three different uh, insurance companies. We're going to kind of give you the lay of the land with these three different insurance companies. We did take the top three, just to let you know. Um, the first one we're going to reveal is probably one that most businesses have seen before, and probably I would say 75% or more of the businesses out there have filled out. Uh, the other two are probably more in the 25% range, but there's reasons, and we'll go through those reasons uh, later on in the show, why we want to bring these to your attention. But most importantly is we want to go through kind of page by page what it is these cyber insurance applications are asking, why they're asking it, and why you might want to answer something a certain way or might not want to answer something a certain way based on what we're seeing in real incidents out there in the world that we have experienced or have experienced in or we've been aware of through our time helping companies through things like ransomware events and business email compromise. So that's what we're doing in the show today. But before we do, remember, we, uh, we do this show out of the goodness of our heart. If you could remember to promote us wherever you're listening to us or seeing us, we would highly appreciate that. You doing that not only helps us get our word in front of more people, but it also helps these like little algorithms out there that all these companies like Google have to help other people find this content should they be seeking it out. You know, every little vote helps, every little share, every little like helps other people see this content. And we appreciate you for that. So, guys, anything you want to add to before we, we jump into our first application of the day, our first victim? And, uh, I always like, yeah, I always like to say it's uh, free as in free beer. Free beer. Uh, not, not free as in cheap. So, how's your, uh, how's, your, how's your coffee, by the way? Mine's excellent. Uh, mine, mine's great. My wife just made it. Good, good. Good answer. Good answer. I started off so so I asked her, I said, How much do you love me? And she goes, Oh, I love you a lot. Then she realized our daughter says that before she's asking for something. Mm -hmm. So then she said, Wait, what did I just give myself into? And I said, Oh, nothing, just a pot of coffee, please. And she did it. And here we go. So uh Remember, you can, again, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. You can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, we live stream this uh, show there uh, pretty much every Tuesday, unless we have to adjust our schedules because we got things going on. Uh, so remember, while we're live, you can actually drop comments in, and we will see them, hopefully, if you give StreamYard, the platform that we use to broadcast, permission uh, to your account, then we can see these comments come through uh, and also questions come through and address them during the show. If you were watching us maybe about a month ago, we actually had somebody reach out and say, hey, can I come on live right now? And we literally brought them on live right then and there, the power of technology. So just remember that if you have any questions as we go through these cyber insurance applications, we would definitely uh, love to entertain audience questions along the way today. Uh, to help out the conversation and, and get maybe some perspectives or some questions from uh, you guys, uh, which are always good to have in, in addition to ours. Um, so guys, without further ado, let's uh, go into our first uh, deep dive, which is going to be uh, what I think is the more popular uh, cyber insurance application out there. I think a lot of business owners, leaders who have filled out these know have seen this before. 
Um, but essentially, we have the Beasley Cyber Insurance application. We selected the one uh, that's for applicants with revenues lower than 250 million. We kind of know the numbers out there in the world, and that's like 98.9% of the businesses out there <laughs> um, that are under 250 million. Um, so this is going to cover a lot of companies. A lot of companies are going to see this kind of application. The first thing that I want to point out is that it's seven pages long. Um, guys, remember a couple of years ago when it was just like one page? Like, hey. Yeah. I remember it was like, how much data do you have? It was like, like how many files do you have? Right. And it was like, that was literally what they were asking. They were trying to you know, they're trying to figure out how to make money with this product. So they, I guess at first they were like, well, if we know how much data they have, then we can kind of figure out like how much, you know, we could cover, we, we should cover them for based on like how much a ransom demand is going to be because kind of back then the ransomware groups were basically picking a number out of thin air based on the number of files that they were able to encrypt. Mm -hmm. uh, so the more files that they were able to encrypt, the bigger the demand. Things have kind of shifted to where the cyber criminals kind of look at the business now and say, oh, you're a business with 100 million in revenue. So guess what? We want $2 million uh, for you to get your data back. That's kind of how they formulate the number today. And it's kind of what cyber insurance companies are doing to formulate their number. Um, so anything here, guys, uh, at the top, I mean, obviously it says, you know, in the there's reasons for gray boxes, right? Not because they want to hide it from you because they're kind of saying, this is kind of important here. You might, you might want to take a look at this, right? So responses to this application should be accurate as of the date of the application and signed and dated below. Please provide responses below concerning the information technology environment of your organization and any subsidiaries, which we'll kind of talk about that a little bit, Randy, right? For which the insurance is being sought you may use the space under the heading additional disclosures and clarifications to clarify any answers that may be incomplete or require additional detail. Um, this is also kind of like in my mind, like just knowing how this all works, guys, it's kind of like you better be checking with somebody who knows this stuff, knows about this stuff when you're answering these questions. Don't just like go down this thing and guess or um I mean, that's something I've seen before, probably more than most people who are watching this would think, where people try to guess their way through this application. That's probably, you know, to start off our show with this, it's probably like the worst thing you can do, right, guys, is, is to guess on these applications. Yeah, plus it's them covering themselves because once you go ahead and say that this is what you have and I'm signing and dating it, they're going to ask for the receipts later on in, in the event that there is some type of um, cyber incident. They're going to say, well, you said you had this and, you know, and it clearly, you know, shows proof that you had it because clearly you didn't have two form factor on or whatever the case is. Right. And I mean, the, the, the whole gist of it, anytime you're dealing with insurance is just be as honest as you can and put down what you know. And that's, and there may be some things on this application that you don't know that you need to find out. Um, but that way you don't have to worry about it later. When you have um, some sort of claim, you know that you're covered. Yeah, that's, that's the key here, right? Is as we go through this, um, you know, at the end of the day, you, the information that you put on this application is really going to be what determines a if you can get cyber insurance in the first place and b you know if anything contradicts or goes against what you put on this application you're reducing the, the chances of that claim being successfully paid and the other thing i want to mention before we really dive into it is cyber insurance uh companies today are either denying the claim, just so you're aware, it can it can be a deny claim where they're just like, they find something early enough where they're like, we're not even gonna get involved with this, you're on your own. Like we're, we're not covering you for this because of whatever reason. Um, and the other side of it is they actually do get you through a ransomware event and they get you back up and running and then in that process, you know, maybe towards the end, they determine through all the evidence they collected that you were negligent 
and then they take you to court and sue you for the premium that uh, and the monies that they paid you for the event. And to date, Travelers has been successful a number of times recovering this money from businesses. Uh, and we'll get into why that is in a little bit, that why Travelers has seemed to have uh, some pretty good success with recovering paid out uh, claims. So give me one second here, guys. I'm, again, screwed up with uh, my tabs. All right, so general information, full name, headquarters address, business description, NAICS code, websites, number of employees, revenues. Um, do you have any revenue generating operations outside of your domicile country? And then cybersecurity point of contact. So let's get into why they're asking for all this stuff. Well, let's start with the NIACS code. Why, why is that there? Yeah. Well, I mean, are you asking me or are you throwing me a softball or Andre a softball? I'm, I'm, I'm uh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, from my perspective and why I believe it's there is because they classify different industries and they think certain industries, as we've pointed out on this show, that there are very there are industries that are targeted more heavily than others, right? That's an, that's we have the data to back that up. Um, so I believe that that's why they're asking for that that information because they want to know what line of business you're in to determine what risk level you have. If you're in manufacturing, if you're in in uh, medical, if you're in municipality or K through twelve, you can expect to pay a premium over other businesses that aren't in those industries. That's kind of my thought process behind that. Exactly. So um, website, obviously they're gonna visit it and they're gonna see, do you really do what you say you do or, and, or are you maybe providing some other services that you're not fully disclosing? They want a complete picture of your business and your service offering and who your clients might be. Um, so they will send uh, underwriters to your website to check all that out. Uh, number of employees, uh, clearly they want to see a healthy number. And I would, I would, you know, just kind of, you know, thinking it through, guys, it's like <clears throat> there is a headcount number they want to see, right? They want to see a certain number of, of revenue generated per employee because that gives them a pretty good idea of, how much money you have to dedicate to like cybersecurity and things like that. Right. So um, I don't know if we want to dive into this, but we can throw out some numbers that we're kind of aware of around like, where should your number be at in terms of like what makes insurers and, and quite frankly, other investors, people that are, you know, what you're doing with a cyber insurance policy folks is, is you're assigning risk through a contract to your cyber insurance. Like you're saying like, okay, we're going to try to do our best to protect all this stuff. But if that stuff fails, then we're, you're going to help us stay in business. That's essentially what you're doing. You're assigning the risk to a third party and they're using dollars to, to help you cover that risk should you, should you need it, right? So, you know, you got to look at it this way. A company that can make 300,000 or 350,000 per employee in top line revenue versus a company that makes 100,000 per employee at, you know, top line revenue. What business do you think is going to be able to invest more and do more with cybersecurity, right? Clearly it's the one that makes 350,000 per employee versus the one that makes 100,000 per employee. And these are the reasons they ask these numbers. It's not just like they want to see that you have a big company. And that's like, that's why we want to share this perspective with you because you really don't understand why they're asking these, not asking for these numbers. But if, you know, you put uh, a high, if you highball your employee count, but you lowball your revenue, because that's what you think you should do, because that that's going to make it look the best. That's probably not a great idea either. Um, because if you're, that's going to drive down your per, uh, your, your revenue per employee down to a number that might make these, these underwriters feel uncomfortable and say like, well, they don't have a lot of money to play with here. So how much can they really be investing? That's my take on it. Do you guys see any other way that they could be using this information on page one to determine risk? 
No, I'm, I am curious though. Um, do they normally ask, like I haven't seen it, but uh, at least for my company, do they normally ask for proof? Let me no. see your payroll. Yeah. So it's usually just back, they're just doing it on faith and, and. No, they don't ask for proof until they have to actually write you a big check. I see. Yeah. And then they'll ask for proof. Okay. Then they'll start to say, does this line up with what you said on the application? Right. That's why it's in your best interest to make sure that this stuff's a thousand percent accurate because if it's not all these things are things that they can hang you on so they also are asking for a cybersecurity point of contact a CISO a risk manager equivalent role right and the reason I want to bring this up is because why this is really important folks is because you're now what a lot of companies don't realize when they get cyber insurance is now they have compliance Right. So you might be in an industry that has no compliance. All. I love using like a pizza shop. Right. They other than PCI and a lot of, you know, you might be a pizza shop that doesn't even accept credit cards. You just do cash. So you wouldn't have any compliance at all. Right. But if you decide like, hey, I want cyber insurance. Well, now you have compliance because now your cyber insurer is saying you have to do certain things. One of those things and what we're seeing across the board with a lot of compliance, state laws, regulations is cybersecurity point of contact. Who is it? And you have to name them. You have to have them on staff. You have to have somebody appointed in your company. You can't assign this to a third party unless it's contractually there. Like you, you bind it like, Hey, you're going to be our security officer and, and you have a contract in place and you're probably paying somebody for that role. You can certainly outsource this role if you so choose, but if you don't have that contract in place that says that this person is this in this role for you, you can't assume that this is like your MSP, your IT director, like, you know, you got to make sure that the person who's in this role knows that this is their role. Because if you get hit with ransomware and they come in and they say, we want to talk to your risk manager. And this person's like, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm just the IT person. Well, that's not going to be a good sign for you. And we've seen that happen. So, that's one reason why they want a risk manager is because they want to know that somebody is ultimately overseeing and responsible for your security at your company. And they want it. It's also an indication to them that you're taking this stuff seriously um, because companies that don't take it seriously, don't have somebody in this role or they don't think about it, or they think that somebody else is handling it for them. Um, this really gets muddy. And I'd love to hear your guys, um, kind of input on this, but this really gets muddy with companies that work with IT companies and managed service providers. Because a lot of times there's what I call mis uh, mutual mystification around who's responsible for security, where the client thinks I hired this company to do my IT, so they're also responsible for my security. Um, and I've also seen it where companies have hired, you know, other IT firms or even, you know, just they've kind of shifted those responsibilities to an IT person without actually having a formal conversation that they're responsible for this stuff. What are you guys seeing out there? Do you agree with kind of what I laid out? No, that's exactly what's happening out there. You'll just have for number three specifically, where the um, business owner is filling it out. They have an IT guy and they just put that person's name on it. Don't even consult with them. Just like, oh, just putting his name. I'm curious to even see if any of this they're, they're going to consult with someone from IT. Yeah. yeah, and why wouldn't they put a? Why couldn't you put a third party here? You can, but there has to be a trend. Uh, there has to be. What I'm saying is, make sure you have a, something in writing, like a contract, right? So if your contract with your MSP says that they're going to provide CISO services, you're good. But what I'm pointing out is, is a lot of MSP contracts don't have anything about security or don't have specific wording around a CISO role where they're saying, like, because look, you can hire an MSP to do your cybersecurity, right? But that just means they're providing services or tools around that. It doesn't mean they're, they're the cybersecurity point of contact or the CISO in this case, right? They're just providing the services that you need to, to, to get cybersecurity. I'm talking about specific language. It says this person is providing us with these specific CISO services, right? So whether it be tech rescue or somebody that they hire, um, 
that it can be outsourced or it can be given to a third party, but you better have specific language that says you're providing that service. That's my point. Right. Mutual mystification, right? Mm-hmm. Two sides think one one thing's doing the other, right? And it's that. So that was page one, right? So five years ago, we would have been done, right? But it would have asked different questions. Um, and now here we go, page two. Are you engaged in any of the following business activities? We, we're not going to go through all these. You can see them up there on the screen. Um, let's just, I'm going to throw it out there. Why do you guys think that this is kind of laid out this way? You, you know, because, you know, I'm looking at it going, wow, adult content, cryptocurrency, and MSPs and managed care are all kind of lumped in, and they want to know, are you engaged in any of these activities? So, um, you know, I think they all have different reasons line by line, right? <clears throat> Top one would be considered like risky services, um, right? Um, and I would guess that if you're in any of these areas, they probably won't even offer you um cyber insurance just because they're so risky from a lot of different um places again with crypto blockchain technology payment processing and debt collection um there's a lot of risk there you're you're basically dealing with social security numbers things like that um but as we get into the next group i think the next two you better be doing things tight you will get you they'll still write you a policy but you you're going to be scrutinized you know very very stringently more so than like a a a normal like business um if you're not listed here i you know i think it's really going to be hard for the first two bullet points in my opinion to even get cyber insurance but the second two you're going to be scrutinized and it's going to be hard to get but you can get it yeah Especially on the MSP sides, we we hold the keys to, you know, 20, 50 clients. So if our data, if we get compromised, now all of our clients get compromised. So that's a big risk there. One thing, too, uh, going back to the second one, payment processing. I remember about five years ago when I did a cyber insurance, they um, on my website, um, we had something where clients can actually make payments. And they said, you got to take that down. And um, another one was also VoIP. We, we said that we did vo- uh, voice over IP services, and they had to take that down as well because it was too risky. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm wondering, uh, so the, uh, the cannabis as a uh-huh. seller or retailer, mm-hmm. are they thinking that they're going to be too high? to protect themselves uh, i mean a, i know i know a little bit about in any of the lists of high risk you know what i mean yeah i mean uh i know a little bit about what's going on in that industry and it's still illegal at the federal level so it's really hard for them to kind of move money and i think it just has to do with that i think it just has to do with the fact that like Getting a bank account for them is very difficult. Doing a lot of different things that normal businesses have no problem doing. It's very difficult in that world simply because of federal laws that are probably going to get changed eventually. Um, but the state laws are way ahead of the federal laws right now. And I, think, I, don't, I don't know where we're at, but I think we're pretty close to like almost 80% of the countries. It's, it's illegal. Um, so, you know. It's just a matter of time, but right now, because of those reasons with all the restrictions, I just think that they are just like, we're not going to be paying for your ransomware attack when you can't even basically do business in this country legally yet. I think that's what it boils down to. Mr. Joe Brian, he said too high. Oh, I know he's too high. He's too high. He's, he's too high. I'm just kidding. So... Going past this, so unfortunately for these groups, um, and we are one of them, and we know how hard we're scrutinized for our cyber insurance, so no surprise there. Um, but yeah, if you're in these businesses, be expect to at least be scrutinized more, if not denied right off the bat because of, of your business. So here we go into the nitty gritty. And I think, you know, for this application, we'll spend a good amount of time for the other ones that we hit since we're 24 minutes in. We'll kind of blow through it because it's it's all the same. We're just kind of kind of show you the, the length and and maybe some some more of the detailed questions the other two companies are asking for. 
Um, but here we go. Um, I guess here's the MFA question, the thing that appeared a few years ago, um, are, you know, uh, for companies to start doing. And it, it kind of was like the, you, we used to talk about on the show, right? MFA is not the silver bullet, but that was like this, the thing that everybody thought that they needed to put in place so they wouldn't get hacked. And I guess, you know, it's a good time to point out that just because you're compliant with cyber insurance doesn't mean you're going to get not, you know, you're, you can still get hacked. Right. So, um, and that was a hard thing. It was a lot of people be like, Oh, we implemented all, all MFA. Like, why did we get hacked? Well, because you have to do like a lot of other things besides MFA. So if you're watching this show, if you're a fan of this show, um, you know that we kind of beat this into you pretty hard, but at the end of the day, um, MFA is not the silver bullet and it never was. Um, but it is required, and we're going to kind of go through all this stuff. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, it was like, hey, do you have MFA? Now you can see we're asking multiple questions around MFA, right? So do you require MFA for remote access to your network? Why did they change the language around this and make it more specific? Because people were going home during COVID and accessing their VPN without MFA and then hackers were figuring this out and they were using VPN to get in the corporate networks and deploy ransomware um, because it was very easy to, to sign into a VPN with just a username and password and no MFA challenge, right? So companies are faced with these kinds of questions because of that. And then again, instead of asking that base question, do you use MFA? They're specifically saying, do you require MFA for access to web-based email? Right. So if you use if you allow access to Outlook Web, when you log in for a long time there, Outlook Web was not didn't even have the option to have 2FA on it. And hackers were getting into people's emails this way without their knowledge. Now, with MFA, you kind of have another layer to prevent these um, hackers uh, from getting into your email. So. I got six, I got seven, eight, nine, and 10 guys. Which ones do you kind of want to talk about? Uh, I don't kind of, I don't want to go through these line by line because I don't think we have the time, but what are some kind of interesting ones here up on the screen that you guys want to kind of go into? I just like how they use the word for number nine. Do you protect all company devices? You know, because how many times have we seen um, where there's a company and there was a computer that's not patched or there's a legacy you know, there's something legacy where that computer couldn't get updates or whatever the case is. So I like that how they use the word all because that's basically all or nothing. What number is that one? Nine. 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 Yeah, I mean that that is you're right. That is all or nothing, and that's gonna that could come back to bite some people in the butt if they didn't take uh, take care of that. Um, yep. You know, Brian, I look at these and I'm like. This is like just basic, like basic IT, like barely. Um, I'm gonna go into for you in a minute for you for you, right? Because you're a security focused MSP. There's other MSPs out there that aren't security focused where this is not basic to them, right? Right. So you gotta. I, I mean, I want to make that point distinct for you and your standards and your company. It's basic. Same here for us, right? But for other MSPs, this this and other IT companies and other internal IT departments, this isn't basic, right? <clears throat> um, and what Randy's kind of referring to is like this is the basic services that you if you want to work with our companies, this is the minimum you're you you would have to do with us because we're not really going to take you on as a client or work with you if you're not willing to at least move towards doing these things in the future. Doesn't mean you have to be doing them today. But if we sit down with you and say, okay, here's everything that we found that you're not doing, you're going to have to, you know, get there, you know, this year, you know, and we'll help you get there. Um, you know, so, you know, you might say six months, 12 months, we'll work with you to get you there. But after that, if you're still not there, then we're, you know, I have no issue saying we're going to part ways um, because it's just too much risk introduced to our business and we have a reputation uphold. Um, and we don't want our clients getting hacked. And if you're not willing to take our recommendations, it's probably not a fit anymore. Um, so that's that simple. So I like, you know, all this stuff. How often do you conduct interactive social engineering, right? That's your security and awareness training. 
do you protect all company devices with some kind of antivirus, anti-malware, endpoint protection software? Do you regularly back up your critical data, right? Um, no, at least monthly, at least weekly or daily. Um, do you or an outsourced provider on your behalf actively manage and install critical patches across your internet-facing systems? And this is something we talk about on this show all the time. With, you know, you know, think about it. We've talked about Move It. We talked about Go Anywhere. We talked about Microsoft Exchange. You know, uh, your Fortinet firewalls that are constantly getting hacked because your your IT providers or yourselves aren't patching these things. Um, it's asking you: Do you actively manage and install these patches across everything that you own? Yes or no? Right. This is probably one of the bigger questions that I see get answered incorrectly. Um, only because of awareness around what they actually have for assets, right? This is one of those things where it's like, yeah, we, we have a company that does this, or yeah, we, we, you know, we have a system that automatically deploys uh, Windows updates, so we're good here. It's, that, that's not what this is asking. This is asking things that touch the internet. Are they being actively? So these are your firewalls or any servers that you might have exposed to the internet because you know, you need to get email or transfer files. And, and just by design, they have to be connected to the internet. That's what this is kind of referring to. So um, anything else that caught your eye here before we jump into yes. these additional security controls? Go ahead. Um, I was going to uh, also about number 11, um, which, of course, I always call that the unsexiest of all of the cybersecurity controls, patching. It's one yep. of the ones that's been talked about the longest. Um, mentioning across your internet-facing systems, and a lot of times what's neglected in this is your website. Your website is an internet-facing system, and most companies, they just put their website up, and it just sits there and very easily can be hacked. We mentioned this before in the podcast a website's a great tool in a psychological war for a cyber criminal because if they can get a hold of your website and put stuff on there while your business is actively under attack, then they can convince you that they're in everything and then there's no winning and you got to pay the money to get out. So I would just highly encourage businesses, one, that this is literally includes your website. Your website needs to be maintained, needs to be patched. Um, needs to be backed up and it needs to be treated just like any other computer that you have access to. Yeah, no, you're hundred percent right there, Randy. Um, and it does. So the next part, we're going to kind of get into the little subsection here of, of the application. I'm going to share my screen back here in a second. Um, but this is kind of like a subsection in the application. This is again, another new, um, kind of caveat to this inch, this Beasley application that I haven't seen before up until this year. Um, and that's asking questions. And this is only for applicants with revenues greater than 35 million. So oh, you're letting them go easy. Yeah. They are. A million dollar company. You should be, you should have this stuff too. I agree. Right. So what Andre's saying is like, it, you know, even like it's ridiculous in his mind that this cyber insurance company is saying like, only companies with rate with revenues greater than 35 million need to worry about these things. And that's a little, you know, that definitely is misguided. Um, and it makes our job harder as, as cyber defenders to convince smaller businesses that they need to do this stuff when they see stuff like this. Um, but at the end of the day, the cyber, you know, the insurance companies really, yeah, they're, covering your risk and they and they will help your business if you need to file a claim hopefully but their interest isn't your business their interest is their business and making money off of this policy right so they've decided that their risk tolerance lives in this world right that they're willing to let businesses under 35 million kind of get away with whatever they want when it comes to securing m365 now that being said I fully believe that this is misguided information and, 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 and business is for what they're doing here. I think once they can wrap their head around this and really understand this, like we do, the, the three on this podcast, that this will apply to everybody by next year. 
-hmm. This is just something that they're trying to figure and wrap their head around with this group of, of customers. But eventually this gray box is going to go away and these questions are going to are going to come to every other business that that's filling out this application as well. Yeah, um, there's a joke in the IT world that says the insurance company is going to be the regulator for us, the one who's going to force these uh, companies to actually do something. In a way, they will be, but it's going to come from other places, too. But cyber insurance, look, cyber insurance is still a choice, right? Yeah. I don't I don't have to buy it. Right. So them being forced through cyber insurance, in my opinion, is a little misguided. But I think over the next five years, you're going to get hit with something. Whether you're forced to purchase cyber insurance through a contract, which we're seeing all over the place, which then forces you into this. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you, you're going to get hit with compliance here in the next three to five years, for sure. Um, so let's quickly go through this. Do you use the Microsoft 365 Defender add-on or an equivalent cybersecurity product with advanced threat hunting to protect against phishing and business email compromise? Do you disable macros in your office productivity software? Um, what security solutions do you use to prevent or detect malicious activity on your network? Um, this, this is, you know, I, I don't want to skip over that question, but I think that's an important question. Do you use hardened baseline configurations across all of your devices? We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Do you rely on a cloud-based backup service? It is a as a it is a is it a syncing service? So that's a big thing, and we'll talk about why that is. Um, and do you have an incident response plan for network intrusion and malware incidents? So that's what I was talking about at the beginning of this section. Everybody should have an incident response plan not just companies over 35 million, you know, and that's a, that's a big problem because this is going to, you know, this is going to influence leaders to do things the wrong way. If, if they kind of, and I and look, your business, we just deal with this stuff all the time. We know how business leaders make decisions and they are going to use this to figure out like what's, what they need to spend, what they need to do, what's the minimum they need to do around cybersecurity and when they look at their requirements and, hey, look, I'm under 35 million. I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. That's what we're going to have to deal with as, as cyber defenders. Right. And we're going to have to either educate and, and get it to them to see that, like, no, you need to do this. Or they're just going to basically be the person who's like, no, I'm only going to do what I have to do. Um, so, guys, 14. I mean, they're really getting nitty gritty here. Like what? endpoint protection you use, what endpoint detection do you use, and what managed detection you use. And quite frankly, I know this is in a section for businesses over 35 million, but I've seen this in just regular applications as well. I've also seen this in vendor third-party risk questionnaires where a company's like, hey, we have to analyze our partners and vendors' cybersecurity risk. And they'll ask questions like this, and they'll have a drop-down that says like, a product, you know, a name product, and you have to pick one or put other, which is at the bottom here, I'm sure. Um, we use a product not on the list above, right? So that's possible, but they have a pretty, I mean, they have all the popular ones. Let's say, let's, let's put it that way. Um, so thoughts, guys? Uh, no, nothing on these. Um, no, nothing on 14. Thoughts, I have Yes. Um, so I, I did want to point out normally number 14 is on, it's on almost every cybersecurity insurance application. I'm surprised or a variant of this. I'm surprised yeah. that it's um, not. Right. And, and just to explain for uh, people that are watching, your, your import, endpoint protection platform is going to be more in line um, with something along the lines of like your more traditional antivirus or that in their minds, um, at least where your endpoint detection and response is kind of going to take it like a whole nother level where it's looking at things that are going on around um, the endpoint and between endpoints based in basic terms. And then your MDRs, when you take all the information from A and B and you send it off, or send it up, if you will, um, to where it's it's actually monitored, where you have AI and humans who are managing the information that's now flowing from these 
from these endpoints, basically. Um, and that when they do that, that's typically 24-7 monitoring. Um, so when you that's one of the reasons why that a company like the three of us would hire someone to do manage uh, detection and response. So then that way we have eyes on the endpoints 24-7. So that way we can sleep and you know go on vacation and things like that. And the companies don't have to worry about getting hacked just because we're on vacation or we're asleep or what have you. So yeah. Yeah, the reality of it is, is we're 40 minutes into this show. We're only on page three, mm. right? And, you know, uh, I mean, we can go a little bit longer than we normally do today, but I don't think we're going to get to all three applications. And and you can kind of see, like, there, there's a lot here, and we're only on page three. They've already asked a ton of information about your security, and we'll try to get through the rest because I don't know if it requires as much discussion, but we'll kind of blow through it. But like 15, do you use a hardened baseline configuration across all of your devices, right? So let me kind of give a picture, paint a picture to businesses as to what this means and what it doesn't mean, right? So if you're not purchasing computers, say through your, you know, an I, a purchasing department where it's going through IT first and they're going through a process where they're hardening it or, 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 you know, updating it and making sure that, you know, when you roll that out, that it's completely protected. Um, you know, I, I'm still aware of companies and, and we know of companies out there that we've talked to in the past where they're still going to Best Buy and buying one-off laptops and they're giving them to their employees and the employees are installing the software themselves. And, you know, that's what their process looks like for buying a new computer. Well, if that's you, if that sounds like you, you're answering no to this question because you don't have a, a hardened baseline configuration. You're just buying laptops and giving them to your employees, right? Um, I don't think this question will necessarily, you know, ruin your chances for getting a cyber insurance policy successfully issued to you, but I do think it's going to increase your premium and 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 you're going to be viewed as a riskier client for the cyber insurer than have you had these things. Uh, 16 is a big one for me, guys, is we got to spend some time on because there's a lot of people out there who think things like Dropbox, OneDrive, SharePoint, Google Drive are backups. Right. One of you take this on and educate our audience on why these services are syncing services and not backups and we'll, what we've seen out there in terms of like when these services have problems. Who wants it? Andre? Sure. Andre? Yeah, sure. So um, as Brian, I'll follow up. <laughs> yeah, okay. So as Brian mentioned, these are not backups. So syncing is that you have your phone, you have your laptop, your desktop, other employees, you're sharing files and you're syncing, syncing data. So as you change a Word document, it syncs on the other, other devices. But if you have an incident where you have some type of ransomware, or if you have an incident where you need to roll back to all of your data from you know a week ago, a month ago, good luck trying that on Dropbox. Good luck trying that on SharePoint OneDrive. Um, it's not it, you can do what is called revisions. You can go back, you know, to how a file was, um, you know, maybe three hours ago or three days ago. But a true backup where you can restore the functionality of how this file and folder was, that's not what a um, that's not this. And plus, what if Dropbox or OneDrive or Microsoft, uh, for whatever reason, their server had a glitch and all of that data that you worked on is now gone? Is that data somewhere else? Or, um, so there's so much, or even if you have a, a ransomware attack and all of that data, all of that previous revisions also had, um, is also encrypted. So that's why you want that data somewhere else. So that way, if you do have something with your main, um, you with one of these main companies, it's with a third party. Yeah. And to, to add to that, so it doesn't mean that Dropbox is bad or OneDrive is bad or whatever. Um, but, you know, it means though that the reason you can't rely on this also for backup is that if there's a criminal in your system, okay, so what, what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to get the, the entire lay of the land as much as they can. It's not like you just, you make one click and then boom, 
it all goes to heck. You make one click and boom, like a, a tiny little worm gets inside your system and they open up and they just start looking. They start looking, they start watching, they start um, taking the lay of the land. One of the things they're going to do is what are, the, what are these people's backups? And so if you're using these as your backups, what they'll do when they pull the switch and do that ransomware, like five seconds before that, they'll just delete everything and then delete it out of the trash can. And then boom, it's gone. You have no way back. So to be very clear, it doesn't say if you rely on Dropbox, OneDrive, SharePoint, or Google Drive, those are all good products for whatever purpose you need them. They can be at least. It says if you rely on a cloud-based backup service. So to echo what Andre said, you want to be backing up the Dropbox. You want to be backing up the OneDrive. You want to be backing up the SharePoint. Your data always needs to exist in at least two places. And if you're using a syncing service, it can be on multiple phones or whatever or multiple devices, but it's really still really only in one place because when you delete it in one, it's deleted on all of them. And it doesn't really make that noise, but that's the gist um, of it. So it's a good question for them to ask. And you know what this means? That means that there are a crap ton mm -hmm. of companies. And that means a lot down here in Texas. There's a crap ton of companies that are making 50 million a year or more who consider this their backup solution. 100%. We just That's met with a company. We just met with a company last week where they were like, yeah, we have everything backed up in Google with Google Drive. That's and, so disturbing. And we looked into it and it's like, yeah, you have Google Drive, but this ain't backed up. Like, so if Google Drive loses your data, it's all gone. And I was yes. like, three, it was like three terabytes of data. And when the poop hits the fan in an encryption event, two minutes before that, they're going to delete everything and they're going to empty that recycle bin and your data is gone. So 17, do you have an incident response plan for network intrusion and malware incidents? I already kind of let the cat out of the bag on this one, but you sh everybody should be doing this. This shouldn't be excluded to 35 million or more. Um, Incident response plans are basically going to be your key to you surviving any kind of an event. Um, and the more you have this plan laid out ahead of time and you understand it and, and you work on it and improve it, you're just improving your chances of staying in business through any kind of an event, whether it be a, a cyber event or floods, fires. I mean, you see what's going on in the world with these hurricanes and, and flash flooding and mudslides out in California at any point in time, your, your business could be in the crosshairs of a natural disaster. And these things come in place for those things as well. All right, guys, let's just blow through this. Probably get, hopefully we can get through this in like the next three to five minutes. And maybe we'll do a follow on with the other companies uh, later on down the road. Cause I don't think we're going to get to those today, but the gist of those other companies is, is, is number one, Travelers, and then we we're going to look at AtBay. Um, they both have extensively longer cyber insurance applications. And, and the more important thing with Travelers is they have a ton of supplements that you have to go through based on the level of coverages that you're looking for. So they get really detailed and really specific in their questioning about what you're doing in your environment. And they have a base level cyber insurance package that covers certain things and has, you know, low limits. Um, and then you can kind of buy add-ons with these supplements. So if you want more coverage around ransomware, you can get it, but you're going to pay more for it. But they're also going to ask you a hell of a lot more questions about your ransomware protection and your incident response plan in order for you to qualify for that. Um, so that's kind of how they're doing it over at Travelers. The other important thing about Travelers that I want to point out is Travelers has been an insurance company that has been very, very successful in countersuing uh, their, their clients who they've paid claims to, um, and they've taken them to court. And I think three or four times in the last 12 months, they've been successful in recouping the funds that they've paid out to businesses who said they were doing things on this application that they really weren't doing. That's what that boils down to. Um, so media controls, guys, um, you know, do you have a review process in place to screen what's going on the internet? Um, why is that important? Um, do you have a notice to, and takedown procedure in place to address potentially liabilist infringing illegal content on your website, DMCA or somewhere? Randy, you do this in your business, so I'm going to let you 
take this. Um, be as quick as you can, but why should a business and why does a cyber insurance company even care if you have things like copyrighted images on your website? Yeah, you just have to be very careful what you put on your website. There are there are literally people um, or, you know, I would assume it's bots, you know, under the control of people just scan the Internet looking for copyright infringements. And 99 out of 100 occasionally, uh, well, 99 out of 100 send you a letter that say, hey, we want $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, or let's go to court. One out of 100 will say, hey, you're using our stuff. Please stop. Let us know when you've taken care of it. So you got to make sure that all the stuff that you use is copyright free, comes from a material, uh, a source where it can have a copyright, but that you own the rights to it. That mm -hmm. you also that you own the rights to put it on your website. Mm -hmm. You also have to be very careful with uh, fonts because, yep. like, Adobe has a great suite of fonts. They require to you you can buy a license, no problemo, but they require you to have certain wordage on your website. And if you don't, you're in breach of that license. And they don't come out. They don't come around saying, "Hey, please fix this." They come around. And they say, "Hey, please pay up because you're a man letter." Uh, without without license that's at least that's what i've heard yep hear a comment from somebody from adobe which by the way we were going to say at the end none of us are insurance agents and no. we're not recommending or not we're not we're, we're neutral on beasley and travelers and no, all that no. we're just here discussing it and quite frankly you can't sell beasley unless you're a licensed insurance agent and um yeah, I mean, these are just the more, this is the most popular application I've seen come across my desk when I'm consulting with clients. And we'll get into that in a minute at the end. There's a question I'm going to kind of throw up at the end here from an audience member that'll be a good question to kind of wrap up with. Um, but as we move along here, money transfer controls. Well, wow, business email compromise. Um, that this is, this is what they do, right? They try to trick people or they get the information themselves and they do it themselves. Um, but it's basically saying employees responsible for dispersing or transmitting funds. Do you have a way to train them so they know that they're not being tricked? Right. Do you have mechanisms in place, fail safes to make sure that, you know, maybe two people have to sign off on money being sent, not just one. So you can't get that like email from the CEO that says, hey, I need you to wire this to this address immediately, you know, blah, 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 big emergency and, and you know, whatever, for whatever reason, the person in, in charge of the money decides like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. And, and they go and they wire this money. And then the CEO is like, I never sent you that email. Right. That happens. Um, the other thing is when vendors or suppliers request any change to its account details, do you have a way to go back to your suppliers and say, hey, are you really changing the bank account that we're, we wire your, your monthly check to or your, or your payments to? Um, maybe either a phone call or a way to, to have checks around that because why are they asking these questions again? Because they're seeing this type of fraud all the time and they want to know that you have checks and balances in place in your company so you're not willy-nilly wiring money around the world, which quite frankly is very, very hard to recover and you're not protected from this in any way, shape, or form, you know, through any kind of insurance other than something like this if you buy it, right? But if you don't have these checks and balances in place and you try to file a claim around this stuff, you're not going to get the claim paid because they're going to be like, hey, you said you had, you know, a way to make sure that, you know, this wasn't fraud and you didn't use that process here and you're, we're not paying this claim. Anything else you guys want to add to that? Good? Yeah, we're good. And then mergers and acquisitions. Randy, I know you wanted to dive in this one in the past 12 months. Uh, have you completed, uh, agreed to a merger, acquisition, or consolidation? Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on why they want to know this? And hmm. I think we all, we all kind of looked at this. I mean, I've seen this question before, but... Um, we all kind of looked at this and was like, okay, this is a, like an odd question to ask. Um, what are your thoughts on, on why this is here? I mean, it is a little odd to ask, but if you think about it, something that I say all the time, it didn't start with me, but I say it all the time is complexity is the enemy of security. And whether that's given a too complex of a situation of a, of a solution to your clients 
and then they just work, find workarounds because they can't even use it. Or, you know, in this case, you have two businesses coming together. What happens? Well, one of the many things that happens is the complexity increases, at least for a while. That's why they're saying 12 months. You have 12 months of people are going to leave. You know, somebody's in a new role. There could be there could be employees whose feelings were hurt by it. You could all be all well-meaning and all happy and it's all coming together and you're leaving some stuff behind when you're merged into the new company and you forget to close it down. There's a lot of things that could happen, you know, in that complexity. Um, some your your customers might see that. And then one day, you know, Bob is their invoice person and the next day it's Jill. And then they're like, oh, I guess there's a lot of change there. Well, when the criminal comes along and invoices them, they're like, oh, well, they're undergoing a lot of change. And they just go ahead and pay it. And it goes to a fake bank account or something like that. So I, I, that's, that's how I look at it. Yep. And the other piece of this is, is, you know, we all know by kind of talking on the show all the time, it takes somewhere north of 200 days for hackers to be found on most networks, right? And insurance companies are aware of that number. And they also know that hackers do a lot of intel before they strike, before they do something big like a ransomware event, right? So if they're seeing in emails or in documents that they have access to, because you're unaware that they're on their network, and if you guys think I'm making this shit up, I can tell you that this is more common than you would think. Um, but at the end of the day, they sit on these networks, they learn about the business. If they can see that a transaction is about to happen, right? And it's going to make the company go from 20 million to 100 million or what have you, you know, 50 million to 100 million. If I'm a cyber criminal and I know that that date's in three months, I'm waiting three months and hoping I don't get caught because chances are I'm probably not. And I'm going to wait and strike when that company is $100 million versus, you know, 50 million or 20 million. And that is literally why they, you know, part part of the reason Randy's right, but part of the reason is they know that hackers are doing this intelligence gathering. And if I told you the number of ransomware events that happened after happen after a merger and acquisition, your mind would be blown. Um, it happens a lot. And these hackers wait for these events to happen. Um, and they strike. They literally, I know of like three or four M and A's where they struck with like within seventy two hours of the deal being signed. Mm. So <clears throat> it happens way more frequently, and it, you know, right? That's why it's on an application because they know it happens. So this is about the end. I mean, the rest of this application, about two pages, is like notices to applicants in different states. To basically say it's unlawful to knowingly provide false, incomplete, or misleading facts or information to an insurance company for the purpose of defrauding or attempting to defraud the company. Penalties may include imprisonment, fines, denial of insurance, and civil damages. So this is basically everything that we've been telling you all along. Um, but you know they're spelling this out for you that basically, like, if if you basically, in you know, defraud with intent, like and they can prove that a lot of different ways that you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why they ask about prior claims. You know, do you have any knowledge, you know, that you have an issue going on right now, or you have somebody in your network and you're trying to apply for insurance. And then they ask for, for the past five years, have you been subject to any of these five things? Right. And you can see them up on the screen. Right. Breach of information, subject of a government action investigation, notified customers of a data breach, experienced an extortion attempt. Um, if you answered yes to any of the above, um, have you experienced three or more of these events? And they want to know kind of like what's your risk tolerance here? Um, you know, I guess these questions kind of to me are sniffing out like really, really risky companies. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't you know. I don't see a, a whole lot that they can gather from this other than you're super risky. <laughs> what, do you, what do you guys get out of this? Oh, you're muted, Randy. Yeah, sorry, I was muted. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, yeah. They're just, you know, it, it's the same with all kinds of insurance. They ask questions like this. Have you been in a car wreck? You know, have you done this? Have you done that? Um, they're just trying to trying to weed out, quote unquote, 
uh, the riskier businesses with these questions. And, and, and the other thing too, like this section points out to me is like businesses, it's not just about ransomware. It's not just about, you know, business email compromise. They're asking questions about privacy breaches, data breaches, right? So you, you, you could just have somebody get into your network and steal data and, you know, that's going to kick in, potentially require you to kick in your cyber insurance because it could be an, enough data and enough uh, extortion and embarrassment to you where you end up needing to pay millions of dollars to make sure that that data doesn't get released. And that's kind of what this section deals with. Like, or, or, you know, you may not have been hacked or you may not have gone down. Your operations may not have gone down as a result of some things that happened to you in the past, but have you ever had a third party touching your data that should not have touched it? And that's what they want to know here. Right. And they also want to cover anything that could have happened in the past. So you're basically saying like, no, you know, up until this point we're clean. So you can't get this application. And then 30 days later, you know, you get your policy 30 days later, you're like, Oh, Hey, you know, we want to file a claim because 18 months ago, this happened, right? Well, this section kind of, you know, gets them clear of any of, of needing to pay a claim around any of that stuff that happened in the past. So this is pretty, uh, pretty deep stuff, guys. And, you know, we were hoping to get into the other two applications, but we really didn't have to. I mean, quite frankly, the other two are extremely similar um, just a little bit longer, or they may ask the questions a little bit differently or detailed. Um, and just to kind of illustrate that a little bit before we wrap up the show, I'm just going to kind of throw this at bay application up and like just this one question, what kind of sensitive information does the applicant store or process? We didn't see that on the Beasley application. Right. So they want to know what data points you store. Right. You could, I guess, from the the NAICS code, infer what they may have for data points. Um, but I think I like this a little bit better because now you're basically pinning them down and saying, like, you know, you can make assumptions based on what that industry deals with. But that business may may or may not deal with those data points. You know, you can't assume, you know. This is a specific question. And then I guess like from our standpoint, guys, we can run tools that back this up, right? We can run tools that say like, hey, you have driver's licenses, passports, social security numbers that we found on your network, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that kind of back this up. Um, but I'm just, you know, the only reason I brought that up is to kind of compare and contrast these applications, you know, like I said, at Bay and Travelers gets a little bit more detailed in the questions that they ask in terms of like, you know, specific data points and, and, and stuff like that. But overall, they're generally the, the same. So good stuff. What's your big takeaway, Andre? Big takeaway, and that'll kind of go with uh, the comment that uh, Stephen Mesco made. Oh, yeah, let's throw that up. Is, um, so he says, would an MSP be able to walk through an application like this with a business owner to help them fill it out accurately? And I would say that they can't. They, there's no way they can um, do this themselves. You, you need an MSP to to be able to walk through it and and verify these things are done and verify that um, that it's actually there. Yeah, I always say the person who's responsible for your network should be the one who helps you through the application. I am against that person being the one who fills it out. I think the business owners or the ones who actually own the risk. That means the people who can get sued and will be named yep. in a lawsuit. Agreed. Are the ones who fill it out and they're just guided by the IT person or the person with the technical knowledge who can answer the stuff accurately. <clears throat> that is the way it needs to be done. If you're an MSP friend of ours, and you're doing this for your clients, I would highly advise you to stop and make that more of a consultative role that you play for them. You're, 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 you're taking on liability that you don't realize you're taking right. on by being the person who fills out that application and submits it or sends it back to the client and says, go ahead and submit this this way. 
It's also an opportunity for you to sit down and open the discussion with these clients about what this stuff means, just like we're doing on the podcast today. So I don't care if it's your MSP, your IT director, your IT person, your network administrator, whatever role you call them, but they should be guiding you through the process, Mr. Mr. Business Owner, um, through this application process, and you should be the one ultimately filling it out at the end of the day. Randy, what's your takeaway from today? Um, yeah, I, I don't even have one. Oh. I think I did a second ago, and then I forgot we got talking on something else, and I need to go to another meeting, so I'm good. No no takeaway from today. All Thank good you. Stuff. Thank you, brother. All right. Go ahead, Andre. There is something, though. Sorry, Randy. Um, remember in the show, Randy, uh, the, the, the conference we just came out of, where they talked about insurance and how even if you had a $1 million policy, there's some sub levels. Like if, if you got a yeah. ransomware, it's only like $5,000 or yes. something like that. Yes. Can you yeah. stand on? Yeah. You got to be very careful about the insurance that you have. Um, some vendors actually offer an insurance quote unquote, if you use their particular software, but if you have a million dollars worth of insurance, but that's like business email compromise, we'll pay $50,000. Ransomware event, we'll pay $50,000. Ransomware and encryption event, we'll pay $50,000. You know, a virus that blows up a bunch of computers, we'll pay $50,000. Like you have to be careful. So, because then that's what's the point of having all those tiny little policies? Right. I mean, so, yeah, the other thing I've seen is business owners who think they have cyber insurance coverage, but they really have business crime insurance or, or internet crime insurance, which is basically that. It's like to cover you misdirected, you wired funds to some, like you paid an invoice that was like $10,000 and you sent it to a cyber criminal by mistake. That's what that's meant to cover. It's not meant to cover a ransomware event or a major business email compromise. Right. So cyber insurance policies are not part of your business owner's policy. Um, it's a separate policy all in itself. And you need to specifically ask your agent for that and apply for it. So don't assume that you have it because you saw like, hey, cyber breach insurance in like a business owner's policy. That's not cyber insurance. That's just a little bit of coverage that you have for things like minor re misdirection of funds and stuff like that. So, all right, guys, thanks for your time. Good show. Um, hope everybody gets a lot out of this. And if you do, please, please remember to share our show, like our show and rate us if you're listening to us on your podcasting platform and we will see everyone next week. Take care. All right.